This is, uh, this is our final look at uh, Paul's second and difficult letter to the Corinthian believers in church. And uh, during the previous four nights uh, of this Dying to Serve series, we've looked at our calling to be conduits of comfort, that's based on chapter 1, then ministers of reconciliation from chapter 5, and then models of generosity from chapter 8. And then last week, as we approached chapter 10 from a slightly different angle, we talked about the serious problem of approval addiction. And we explored the importance of being God-pleasers rather than people-pleasers. And the homework that I set uh, during and after last week's service was to come up with a phrase or with a title that kind of captured what I talked about last week that would sit alongside these other three, conduits of comfort, ministers of reconciliation, models of generosity, because I couldn't think of a title. Okay? Uh, And so lots of different people gave me lots of different suggestions. They were all good. But the one that I'm going to run with is seekers of God's approval. It's one word too many, uh, but it still works for me. Uh, But before we turn to uh, 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, I want to pause for a moment and and ask you a question. Okay, and the question is this. How are you getting on? How are you getting on with this? Who have you recently comforted? Who have you recently drawn alongside and offered care to and support to or provided care and support to? When was the last time you encouraged someone to be reconciled to God? We're ministers of reconciliation. We're Christ's ambassadors. That's how we serve. When was the last time I encouraged someone to become friends with God again? How generous have you been? Or do you intend to be this Christmas? Will we give what we can, and then some, and then some more, till it hurts? Going to give sacrificially? Are we going to be models of generosity? That's how we serve, according to Paul. And whose approval has mattered the most to you this week? Has it been the opinions of others that has kind of defined you and dictated to you, shaped your identity this week? Or have you really sought to be a God pleaser rather than a people pleaser. Now, questions like that are not intended to threaten us or leave us feeling guilty or judged. I'm simply just asking them to give us the opportunity to reflect on our response to this series, on our response to God's word, on our response to the call to serve. So how are you doing? Okay, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's page uh, 1,164, although we're going to be starting at verse 16, which is on 1,165. And and again, as I've said, right through this series, we are dealing with with dense material. There's a lot in here, a lot of interesting and sometimes strange comments and phrases that are difficult to understand. But as Paul confronts his opponents... 
and as he defends his ministry and as he defends his leadership and as he defends his role as an apostle, which is something that he actually does right from chapter 10 through to chapter 13. But as Paul challenges the opinions of others and the faulty teaching of the so-called super apostles or the false apostles or the deceitful workers, all phrases that Paul uses to describe his opponents, the real issues that are at stake concern true greatness, concern a proper or a different understanding of strength and weakness in Christian service, or to be more accurate, the reality of strength in weakness, or the strength of weakness, which to many people sound like contradictory terms, paradoxes, and I'll explain more as we go along. Have a look at verse 4, that is on page 1164, it's on the screen, because you see clearly there was a problem. Some people in and around Corinth are peddling or teaching or promoting a different Jesus. A different spirit and a different gospel. That's what Paul says. Now, exactly how different their Jesus was and the spirit was and their gospel was, that's a bit unclear. And Bible commentators are, are not united in their interpretation of the differences. But if you, if you look at this uh, alongside or in light of kind of the whole tenor of Paul's comments about his opponents, then these words of, of Roy Clements that I'm going to show you, I find incredibly helpful. And this quote comes from his excellent book, The Strength of Weakness, which is a commentary on 2 Corinthians. But he says this, their error, that is the super apostles, these false apostles, these deceitful workers, their error, error lay not in specific false teaching, but in their methodology, their emphasis, and their leadership style. Their desire for a Christianity more congenial to the mindset of secular Greek society, here's the bit, demanded a gospel that majored on strength, not weakness. That majored in heavenly triumph, not in earthly suffering. In a word, they wanted a Christianity that played down the cross and played up the glory. So you see, these super apostles, these opponents of Paul, wanted to be strong. And they probably wanted many in the church at Corinth to be strong. But their understanding of strength, their understanding of spiritual strength and the pathway that led to it, was very, very different from Paul's. And very different from his understanding of the teaching and the example of Jesus. Paul's perspective is summed up in this well-known phrase from chapter 12. And it would have made no sense to his opponents. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That would have jarred. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Doesn't make sense. Because as Clements comments, they demanded a gospel that majored on strength, not weakness. Now the problem for Paul was that these charlatans were having a significant and damaging influence on the local believers. Paul talks here about the fact that you put up easily enough with this different Jesus, this different spirit, this different gospel. You put up with it easily enough. And in verse 20, 
He refers to local Christians being enslaved, exploited, taken advantage of, controlled, even slapped in the face. This was serious. And Paul cared far too much to just let it go. And so he writes into this situation, into this context. And he almost appears to use deliberate irony. As a way of kind of grabbing people's attention and trying to stir them into action. So let's read from verses 16 to 20. I repeat. Let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool. So that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone, here's this again, who enslaves you, exploits you, takes advantage of you, pushes himself forward, or slaps you in the face. It's almost as if Paul's saying here, okay, if you as a church are prepared to listen to a bunch of fools, Verse 19, then allow me to be a fool for a moment. If that works for you, Paul's kind of up for it. Plus, if boasting somehow connects with you and it makes you sit up and it makes you listen, then allow me to jump on that bandwagon as well because guess what? I too will boast, he says in verse 18. So what Paul's doing here, he's kind of playing his opponents at their own game. But then... He goes on to boast in a way that would have radically challenged everyone's thinking. Their understanding of greatness and of strength and of success would have been turned upside down as they listened to Paul's boasting from verses 23 to 30. Let's read those together. Verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? Bracket. I am out of my mind to talk like this. Close bracket. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I've laboured and I've toiled, I've often gone without sleep, I've known hunger, I've known thirst, I've often gone without food, I've been cold, I've been naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who's weak? I do not feel weak. Who's led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weaknesses. And I want you to imagine this church hearing this for the first time. When Paul says in verse 18, I too will boast, they're probably thinking, right, this is going to be impressive. Hearing the Apostle Paul boast is going to be impressive. 
But instead of highlighting his extensive experience, his major accomplishments, instead of referring to the number of new converts, the number of new churches that he has established and that have grown through his ministry, he admits all of that and instead he boasts about what? He boasts about suffering, pain, failure. He boasts in and off the things that showcase his weakness. If anyone was sitting in this church listening to this letter read for the first time, wanting to hear a glowing success story, if they were wanting to hear great examples of achievements and triumphs, which is exactly the approach of Paul's opponents, that's what they would have boasted about. Well, they were going to be bitterly disappointed and slightly confused because Paul's boasting refers to him being beaten up, flogged, imprisoned, stoned, shipwrecked, hungry, thirsty, and exhausted. Big yourself up, Paul. And then he inserts a story. And I have to admit that until I was preparing for this during the week, I'd never really appreciated the humor or the satire of Paul's part to include this story at this point. Because Paul recalls an incident that doesn't exactly show him in great light. In fact, and please don't take this the wrong way or as an unnecessarily derogatory comment, but this short passage that we're about to read presents Paul as a basket case. Let's read verses 30 to 33. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's to be praised forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and I slipped through his hands. Now you can read Luke's version of that episode in Acts chapter 9. But this incident in Damascus was a bit of an embarrassment. I don't think I've really appreciated this before. Here's what one commentator has said. If you're wondering why Paul would have mentioned this episode, rest assured that he didn't look back on it as a piece of high drama to spice up his memoirs. Rather, he recalled the event with shame. (coughs) Probably it was the event that shattered whatever residual pride still lurked in the proud heart of Saul the Pharisee. He had set out for the city of Damascus with the avowed intent of rounding up Christians. He left the city not as the hunter, but as the hunted. This toast of high rabbinic circles, this educated and sincere Pharisee, this man who had access to the highest officials in Jerusalem, slunk out of Damascus like a criminal, lowered like a catch of dead fish in a basket whose smelly cargo he had displaced. See, if you were going to share a story that was going to impress people, this was a poor choice on Paul's part. But then Paul wasn't out to impress anyone. Paul was not out to focus on himself and his strength because for him, image wasn't everything. And as I read around these verses uh, during the week, I also came across this fascinating thought uh, from a few different scholars. Now, I'm not saying this is definitely what Paul had in mind as he told this story, but it is interesting. Apparently, there was a custom in ancient Rome where unique military honor was awarded to the first soldier to climb the walls of an enemy city during an attack. It was commonly referred to as Corona Morilius. 
And one commentator therefore believes that Paul is parodying images of what it means to be truly heroic in a culture that was saturated with Roman imperial propaganda. Paul is saying that while the typical Roman hero is first up the wall, he's first down the wall. No, there's no way of telling that Paul had that in mind for sure, but it is an interesting idea. It is a possible scenario. Either way, this was not a heroic tale to insert. This was not an example of a stunning display of strength by anybody's standard, but that's exactly the point. Paul is intent on boasting about these sort of things. These sort of incidents. Those moments whenever he's shown as weak. And this basket case incident is a prime example. But before we go too far down this road of thinking, well, listen, Paul is somehow promoting a mindset that encourages people to go around boasting and bragging about their weaknesses as an end in of themselves. That Paul loves a good pity party. What we've got to remember and recognize is that Paul embraced these moments. He recalled them. He boasted in them because Paul saw them as opportunities for the limitless power of Christ to be seen in vivid and unmistakable display. Paul drew attention to these failures, to these weaknesses. Why? Because he wanted God to be glorified. Paul didn't go around seeking these experiences, but when it came to serving God, when it came to serving others, he's prepared to face up to them. He was prepared to accept them. He was prepared to deal with them. Paul loved. Paul was willing to be poured out for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of others. And if that meant being ridiculed, if that meant suffering, if that meant being locked up, if that meant being questioned, if that meant being made to look foolish, being made to look weak, then so be it. I'm not going to run away from difficult challenges. I'm not going to run away from misunderstanding. Instead, Paul was willing to pay the price and gladly embrace the stigma that inevitably came from obedience to the gospel. And he was going to boast in these experiences. Which may not make sense to people. Which may not promote self. Which may not impress anybody. Least of which the super apostles. But which as far as Paul was concerned. Was going to point people beyond himself. I'm just going to keep boasting in my weaknesses. Because when I do that I point people beyond me to Jesus. It's a kind of Pauline version of John's prayer. That Jesus might increase. And I might decrease. And so I'm just going to boast in my weaknesses. Because then whenever incredible things happen. God gets the glory. <coughs> And the question is, are we up for that? Paul was renouncing self-reliance. He was renouncing all the usual worldly definitions of success, all the worldly ideas about strength. And instead, he was prepared to accept that Christian discipleship is counter-cultural, that spiritual strength is found where? It's found in weakness. That we are called to serve in the power of of weakness which all sounds so wrong and yet so right 
And in order to keep kind of digging deeper about this issue in mindset, we need to keep reading. Because as Paul continues to write, he explains more. And he then goes on to talk about, you know, the infamous bit about his thorn in the flesh. It's another example of his weakness. And although Paul never understood why he had it, whatever it was. Was it an illness? Was it an enemy? Whatever. And although Paul pleaded with God to remove it, he quotes God's response. Which kind of backs up and affirms everything he's been saying and trying to say and what I've been trying to say. For God's power is made perfect in my weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. So that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses. In insults. In hardships. In persecutions. In difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And I know there are people here tonight. And there are people here finding themselves in real difficult places in their lives. And what's going on in their personal lives and in their family lives. And those are weaknesses. And the question is, are you prepared to boast in them? Delight in them? Because Christ's power is going to be seen. As he rests upon you in the midst of those. It all sounds so wrong. And yet so right. Let me read you a brief prayer. That I found this week in response to these verses. See if it resonates. Dear Lord. I love this scripture. I hate this scripture. I run to these verses. I run from these verses. I need this truth. I don't like this truth. I share this passage with others all the time. I shelve this passage many times when I don't like delighting in my weaknesses and difficulties. Times like right now, I don't want to be weak. I don't want to be out of control. I don't want to acknowledge my helplessness. It's an honest prayer, it's a true prayer. And yet it reminds us that God doesn't tend to use the proud. God doesn't use the strong. God doesn't use the self-reliant, the self-confident. He uses the weak. And if you go right back to the very first chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this. God's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the ways. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. You see, God uses our weakness. God uses our weaknesses. Because whenever incredible things happen in and through weak people, God gets the honor. And so it's our weaknesses that qualify us for God's use and purposes. You see, we often think that our weaknesses prevent us from ministering for God. Whenever the reality is, it makes us far more eligible than we can ever imagine or realize. And why is that? Why is that? Because God's power is made perfect. Not in our strength. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And therefore, Paul sees his thorn in the flesh in in a new light. He sees his afflictions through a different lens. He embraces the hassles and trials and difficulties of life. 
with an alternative mindset. In fact, he rejoices in every one of them because they are opportunities for God's grace and God's power in his life, for God's strength to be seen. How it's seen, when it's seen, where it's seen is not always immediately apparent, but we've got to accept that God is true to his word. And therefore, whenever we are weak, we are truly strong. And as I get to near the end of what I want to share, I want to, I want to mention one possible area of misunderstanding because I would hate anyone to go out of here tonight and, and, and misunderstand what I've been trying to share. I hope it's relatively obvious that whenever we talk about weaknesses, we're not referring to sin or bad choices, unwise decisions or imperfect behaviour. You know, sometimes we talk about people having a weakness for, I'm not saying chocolate, some people have a weakness for greed, for lust, for lying, for exaggerating, for pornography. Some people have a weakness for gossiping. That's not what we're talking about. Paul is not saying that the power of Christ is perfected in my bad choices. In the sins that I commit, that's a whole other issue. And regarding those aspects of our lives, regarding those kind of weaknesses... You need to come before God in confession and repentance and seek his forgiveness and renew your commitment to holy living. That's what we do with those weaknesses. That's that's not what Paul's talking about. That's not what I've been trying to talk about tonight. What are the weaknesses I've been trying to share with you? Well, let's go back to this. I delight in weaknesses. Here's four examples of the weaknesses we're really talking about. Insults. Hardships, persecutions, difficulties, insults. Hardships, circumstances forced upon you. Many of you are living with circumstances forced upon you. A reversal of fortunes, situations where you feel trapped. Persecutions, ridicule. Some of you experience that. Abuse, alienation because of who you belong to, because of what you stand up for. Difficulties, trouble, things that weigh you down. Personal things, family things. That a number of you here, a number of in our church family are dealing with. And those are the weaknesses we're talking about. And yet Paul's saying boast in them. Delight in them. And therefore, crazy in all that it seems, let me encourage you not to resent your thorns in the flesh. Not to resent the tough experiences. Not to resent the difficulties and the challenges of your life. Instead, and I know this is easier said than done, instead, ask God to help realign your thinking To see those as opportunities. They are the ways in which and through which God's power is manifested. Remember, his grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. You know, there are some people who go through things in life. And whenever you're you're not there, but you're observing what a particular family are going through 
what a person is going through, you think if you were in that situation, you would never be able to cope. And yet somehow that person copes because God's grace is sufficient for them at that time and in that context. And in Paul's day, all this was revolutionary types of type of thinking. This upset the norm. This didn't make a lot of sense in a culture that played power games. In a culture that celebrated human strength and human accomplishment. That seen weaknesses as exactly what they were. Weaknesses. And I'm not sure a lot has changed. Inside or outside the church. Boasting in those things that show we're weak still sounds ludicrous. And unless we work out what this really means, we will never truly serve in the power of weakness and we'll never really know or experience true spiritual strength. And so may God help us to boast, to delight in insults persecutions and hardships and difficulties so what's the final title or phrase for this series haven't a clue again to end this so i look forward to hearing your suggestions during the week